This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. One of the things we'll talk about on the show today is youth smoking. Have you seen some of these uh, stats that are out now? The Canadian Cancer Society uh, really sounding the alarm bells on some of these numbers that are coming out that finds a 74% increase in vaping among 16 to 19 years old. I mean, I knew this was going up. I, I live near a high school, and anytime I walk by there, you can see lots of kids vaping. I'm like, what are you doing? This is terrible. But, man, 74%? Wow. I mean, that's a big jump in vaping. Smoking rates also up among this youth demographic. Now, think about this. Should smoking and vaping be banned on college and university campuses that's our hot question of the day would you say yes let's do that let's ban smoking on college and university campuses or would you say no that is going too far that's too restrictive at cknw on twitter is where you will find that hot question today at cknw on twitter follow me while you are there please at mike smith news on twitter s m y t h at mike smith news on twitter phone me on the buzz line too 604-331-2899 a triple shot of quakes off the bc coast this morning including a 5.6 magnitude tremor off of haida Gwaii. the experts say those were aftershocks from a 6.2 magnitude offshore quake on wednesday meanwhile of course, we also had that 6.4 earthquake in Southern California this week. What is going on? It looks like there's a lot going on. Uh, let's check in now with Mika McKinnon. She's a geophysicist and a disaster researcher in North Vancouver. Hi, Mika. Hello. Thanks a lot for coming on. What's been going on here these past 48 hours? I got to say, this is just slightly normal seismic activity. We all oh. live along big fault zones up here in British Columbia. It's a subduction zone, one plate under another in California. It's an infamous San Andreas fault area, one plate sliding past each other. We have about 100 to 200 magnitude sixes every year. One's going to happen every few days somewhere in the world. Okay, so this is normal, what we've been seeing here this week. Yes, it's a little bit scary and it's a nice reminder to get prepared, get your earthquake kits together, have a plan. Remember that if there is an earthquake, drop cover, hold on, or if you can't drop because of mobility, lock cover, hold on. But this is nothing all that unusual. Okay, a lot of people have got questions, I think, or are curious about the situation. So what I'm going to do right now, Mika, is read the phone lines out, and we'll see if we can get some phone calls lined up as, as we talk. So if you have a question about earthquakes or earthquake preparedness, give me a call right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. All right, Mika, we had the quakes off of Haida Gwaii there. And also this week, we had that quake in California. Are these related in any way? No, they are not. I understand why it makes sense. They're both on the West Coast, but the Earth is very, very, very big, and they're just too far apart. They're different fault systems. You're only going to really have those aftershocks happening fairly close to the original earthquake. Okay. Is it likely at some point we're going to feel a quake in Vancouver? Well, at some point over the next 50 to 100 years, yes, absolutely. Uh, whether or not we're going to feel one in the next couple of days, this has not really changed our odds, our likelihood at all. Um, it's 
there's a lot of energy that's built up along our fault lines. Uh, it's been, roughly speaking, 300 years since we last had a really big earthquake, and they happen every couple of centuries. So, yes, there is a chance we could get a, an earthquake in Vancouver, and everybody should be prepared for that. But those chances haven't really changed today versus yesterday versus last year and next year. Right, right. Okay, so when we see these quakes off the north coast of BC, you see an earthquake in California, that, as you said, like, that's normal activity. It doesn't mean, like, oh, my God, like, the, the, the you know, this is a warning. Maybe the big one is coming. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of this is one of those dirty little secrets about seismology and geophysics is that we call things four quakes or main quakes or aftershocks of the quake uh, but we don't actually know which is which just by looking at it alone in isolation it's yeah. we have to pick out which was the main earthquake later on by going oh that one was the biggest so so far everything looks like the initial earthquake was the big earthquake and we're seeing a normal aftershock sequence of smaller earthquakes happening less and less frequency frequently the longer we get from that original earthquake but there's always this tiny chance this small little chance it's actually a forequake and it's the build-up and there will be a bigger one later on um mm. and that's that's just one of those complexities that the mechanisms are all the same so we can't tell that unless we're looking retroactively right so if you take a look at the activity we've seen this week and as you mentioned this is uh, normal activity that we're seeing so it doesn't mean like we're seeing more earthquake activity right now or the other earthquake activity has been increasing this is kind of normal this is pretty normal. We get about 100 to 200 magnitude 6 earthquakes somewhere in the world every year, which is roughly speaking one every couple of days. It just happens they both are on the West Coast this time, as opposed to one here and one in Japan or one here and one in Chile in a different seismic zone. Okay, when we take a look at these Richter numbers, I mean, we see uh, like a 6.4 on the Richter scale in Southern California this week. We're, we're told that the one that happened offshore here on Wednesday night was a, a 6.2. What do those numbers say to you when you see a 6.4, 6.2? Are those big numbers? I'm actually going to answer a slightly different question, which is the Richter scale hasn't been used for over a decade, no. and we've been doing something better since before I was born. Um, <laughs> so you're okay. talking about a, a term that has been zombieing on because it's oh. so popular in, in movies. Okay. We actually talk about moment magnitude instead, so it's still magnitude, yeah. um, and it's talking about how much energy is released, but Richter doesn't exist anymore. Um, oh. So, <laughs> sorry, I got so distracted by that. You were asking about how, how much this energy is, what does it feel like? Yeah. So every step you go up in magnitude is a um, hundred times more energy released. So, a magnitude six, it would take a hundred magnitude sixes to hit the same energy as a magnitude seven, or it would take a thousand magnitude sixes to relieve the stress that would be um, built up for a magnitude eight, which also really gets at this idea of this hasn't really changed our chances of the next big earthquake because we've just released a thousandth of the energy that was built up when we get magnitude eight and nine earthquakes in this Cascadia subduction zone here in British Columbia. Okay, can we predict earthquakes? <laughs> we can forecast 
but we can't predict. So we cannot say exactly where and when an earthquake will happen, but we can talk about the likelihood that what will happen. And we can know the regions it will happen in and the types of earthquakes you would get in different regions. Like we get very different types of earthquakes in California versus British Columbia. And that comes down to the geology of the area. In California, the plates, the tectonic plates slide past each other at about the same rate fingernails grow, so a couple of, of centimeters per year. And in British Columbia, same speed, but one plate is going underneath another. And it's actually that plate going underneath is not only why we have much bigger earthquakes, but why those earthquakes happen less frequently and why we have volcanoes in British Columbia and up and down the Pacific Northwest. All of those things are related to each other. Okay, speaking of Mika McKinnon, she's a geophysicist. We're talking about some of the earthquake activity we've seen this week. If you have a question about earthquakes, give her a call right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to a call right now. Joe in Pitt Meadows. Hiya, Joe. Howdy. Um, so question for you would be, uh, my coworker uh, told me a few days ago that with Richmond and Delta being below sea level, if we ever get hit by a really bad earthquake, those would be really bad regions to be. I was hoping to confirm if that uh, if there's some truth to that or if he's just kind of pulling stuff out of the air. All right. So this comes down to what type of land and what type of rocks are you on? So if you're on hard, solid bedrock, then an earthquake is going to shake very little. And if you're on fresh, new sediment, like in a river valley or a delta, it's going to shake a lot. And it's going to do something called liquefaction. It's like the geologic equivalent of oatmeal. So it's not that uh, the ground will turn into big huge gaping cracks like we see in the movies instead it's that the ground gets very soft and squishy and all the buildings on it just kind of go wonky sideways so it's less that um being in these areas and yeah that does absolutely include richmond it includes most of the fraser valley all those flat areas i'm sorry about that since you're out in pit meadows but all those nice lovely flat farming areas with really good fertile soil are unconsolidated saturated sediments and they're gonna react with a lot of significant shaking during an earthquake and it's gonna lead to more building damage there than you would somewhere in north vancouver or in um whistler which are built on rock Okay, it's a terrible thing to ponder. I mean, my goodness, you know, I mean, but hey, this is, it's reality. I mean, this is the reality of the situation. I'm taking a look on Twitter, Mika, and Lee sends a tweet. If the big one, if the big one hits, what about Vancouver Island? What would be the impact there? Any idea? All right. So one of the consequences of having this subduction zone where one plate is going underneath another is that we have offshore earthquakes that move the ocean floor. So there's vertical movement, and that sets off tsunami. And those tsunami come in and they can, uh, the, the land drops down, the ocean comes in, you have great big, huge, destructive waves, one after another after another. Um, and that's one of the big reasons why if you're ever on Vancouver Island, well, really, if you're ever in any coast and you fear, feel severe shaking, as soon as the earthquake ends, run to high ground, yeah. you might be getting a tsunami far too soon to get a warning about it. So you just have to know if you feel shaking, run to high ground. Um okay. 
Okay, waves. okay, Flooded, okay. Well, yeah. yes, for a little while, but then the waves will go back out again afterwards. So yeah. not long-term flooded forever. If you got a question about earthquakes, uh, call right now, 604-280-9898. Back to the phones we go. Wendy and Burnaby, hi. Oh, hi. I was wondering if you could tell me what is the best way to store water in uh, terms of preparation? It's fantastic. So it's really good to be thinking about water. We want people to have at least four liters of water per person for a day, per day uh, and at least a three-day supply. So drinking, food preparation, personal hygiene, dishwashing, all of that needs to come out of your own water supply if we have a really big earthquake. Um, you're going to want to have commercially treated water. We don't actually have... You could do... Um, treatment on the fly so you can boil water you can use disinfectant tablets things like that but you can't um treat your water to high enough quality to be able to store it yourself so that would be an an afterwards thing um in terms of what's the best way to get storage is anything that's in a food safe container i'd recommend things that are non-breakable you don't really want to use glass if it's an earthquake and it falls over it's going to shatter and there's your water and glass shards on the ground um, yeah. but you can do anything from pallets of water bottles up through giant 55 gallon drums that you store in your parking space anything works um, you do have to keep an eye on, I know it's going to sound funny, but stored water does have expiration dates. And that's not that the water goes bad. It's that even the highest quality containers will eventually start leaching out into the water. It's usually a couple of years. Um, you can even get some that are like 10 year stable. But it's just one of those things you want to rotate through the supply on a kind of a regular basis. Uh, you can learn a whole lot about this. The Department of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness for Canada actually has this as a frequently asked question. So they go through quite a lot of detail about water storage and water treatment. All right, Wendy, thank you for that. Good question. Let's go to Lori in Vancouver. Hi, Lori. Yes, hello. Uh, good question. I live in a basement suite, and I'm not really sure where, like, all these different stories um, you should be going under a table while well, my table's flimsy and then they some people say to stand in the like in the doorway sort of door sill thing or do you run outside and I just want to know what the best place to go to is okay. all right so what you're trying to protect yourself from during an earthquake is from falling objects inside of your home. So you're not worried about the entire building falling down on you. Our building codes have been better than that for quite a while. And if you're in a basement suite, I'm guessing it's probably a couple of stories wood frame building. So it's going to sway back and forth is a lot more likely than it collapsing. Um, but what you're worried about is like the lamp falling down, the picture frames that you didn't secure properly to the walls falling down, um, kitchen cupboards opening and all of those dishes flying out. So you're having a flimsy table is actually okay to just duck cover, hold on to the table because the table will try and walk away. Um, if you're in bed, curling up, putting the pillow, protecting the back and, and neck, um, back of your head and your neck with the pillow, um, doorways aren't really great because although there is good structure sound point, the door swings during the earthquake and bashes you uh, so that's not the best 
you absolutely do not want to run out of the building because what happens then is first the earthquake can knock you to the ground because the shaking is so severe. Uh, uh, one of the more common ways people get injured during an earthquake is they panic, they run, they hurt themselves. Um, or when you're leaving a building, all those decorative things on the outside of the buildings, any brick facings, any lamp fixtures, any of those uh, loose roof tiles, all of that comes raining down. And so that difference between indoors and outdoors is one of the most dangerous places to possibly be as everything falls on you. Okay, well, that's some good information there for sure. Let's uh, go back to the phone calls. Mika, we got John in Maple Ridge. Hey, John. Good morning, Mika. I'm really enjoying your uh, listening to you and your, your level of knowledge and how enthusiastically you're presenting it to us. That's very good. Two quick questions. I live in a house high up on a rock bluff on solid rock, so I presume that I think you semi-answered the question prior to the commercials that my house should fare fairly well. And regarding Vancouver Island, I know places like Tofino and Euclid are a bad place to be if there ever is a tsunami. But I've heard the east coast of Vancouver Island, places like Parksville and Qualicum Beach would not be subjected to a tsunami. Is that true? Okay, we got one. We got one minute, Mika. Go ahead. All right. So Vancouver Island is like the world's greatest wave break, and it should be able to block most of the tsunami that's generated from off yeah. from the earthquake itself. Yes. The exception to this is if we have landslides generated by the earthquake, those rocks fall into the water and okay. spring up very small local tsunami, and then you have a problem. Okay. One one more quick one, Mika. I'm asked on Twitter, could Mount Baker erupt yes it could also we have pemberton looks like it might be an active volcano and we're not oh. monitoring it right now so it'd be really really good if we gave uh some political pressure to give scientists the funding and the support necessary to keep an eye on pemberton because i really don't want to have an active volcano in my backyard that's not being monitored me neither i think we could agree on that thank you mika Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. Appreciate your time there. Mika McKinnon, she's a geophysicist and an earthquake researcher. She's based in North Vancouver. Let's talk about looking for a new career in skilled trades. I'm talking like carpentry, plumbing, electricians. I guess there's a perception that these are male-dominated professions. And I guess if you look at some of the stats and numbers kind of back that up. There was a report from the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association recently. It said women account for only 4.5% of skilled trades workers. That's terrible. 4.5%. Come on. I think there are more women, though, who are interested in getting into this work. And maybe there's a perception that these industries are maybe unwelcoming to women. Well, let me introduce you to my guest who is uh, trying to change that and get more women involved in the trades. Her name is Tara Brown, project coordinator, Urban One Builders. She runs a support group for women in building trades. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Tara. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on. So what? tell me about the work that you do over there at Urban One Builders. Uh, currently, I'm a project coordinator, which okay. means I am assisting a team of multiple people, a project manager, a site superintendent. I work along consultants. That's very cool. Do you see a lot of women, more women getting into the into this business lately? 
In, you know what, honestly, I've been working in construction for about 15 years. And I'm going to say within only the last five years have I started seeing an increase in my female co-workers. So what that means is only within the last five years have I worked on a project where I might have a co-worker who was a female superintendent, for example. Okay, a little, a little discouraging, right? But I know there are efforts underway to encourage more women to consider these careers. And these are great jobs, right? I mean, if you can get into one of these jobs with the training, the benefits, and of course the pay. I mean, these are good paying jobs, right? These are great paying jobs, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> the, this, these are jobs that give women an opportunity to be successful and carry a wage for themselves that help them get by in the city of Vancouver. <laughs> okay. So how can you get more women in, into this work? What, would, what sort of advice would you give? I'd like to, when I was thinking about that last night, one thing I'd really like to see and encourage uh, for maybe any schools who might be listening is start encouraging a lot more women to take shop. Um, if I had known when I was a lot younger how much I was going to love being in construction, I probably could have gotten started at a lot younger age. Uh, so I'd love to see shop being offered or being more encouraged in high schools. Um, start pr promoting more. Let girls know that there are options out there for financial assistance. Um, let's start promoting better for, um, you know, taking them out to school projects, taking them out and showing them the industry, getting them out onto site personally. Um, we need to also be encouraging of them together as women. Uh, we need to start supporting each other when we're out on the projects, when we're out in school together. Uh, I recently took some courses through BCIT and in a class of 25 to 30 students, I think there was only two of us in the class. Okay, there should be more. I mean, there absolutely should be more because there's no reason that women can't get into this this line of work and be successful, right? We're, we're not even hitting a, like a 40 percentage of the class yet. So never mind having a target of 50%. We are nowhere close to 50% of, no. of holding up spaces in classrooms. Right. What kind of jobs are available out there? For my goodness, there's so many. I mean, even just to get into consulting or trades, I mean, uh, being an electrician or a plumber is yeah. such a concrete position for a woman to have. And to get started and move throughout your career, you can continuously move forward. I mean, they can go all the way and be a red seal carpenter. Okay. What what are the uh, how do you get into some one of these jobs, or what's the sort of the, the process for getting involved in a career like this, getting into a sort of apprenticeship? apprenticeship training? What are the steps that people have to take? Start asking in your classrooms. When when you're interested in enrolling in, in, in college, go and speak with your guidance counselors. Get them to show you where to find this information. I think that's it's really key in a high school stage for schools to be pushing and providing the information and the key tools that these young women need to have and giving them the opportunity to see if they like it at an at an early age. And and if you if you get the opportunity to get out, out on site and see that it's not such a scary environment. I mean, I go to work every day having so much fun. Hmm. Okay. What and I know you run a support group for women in the industry. What kind of stories do you hear from women who are involved in trades? They like it? They we we all love it. I mean, yeah. we wouldn't be we wouldn't be working in these positions if we weren't passionate about the job. Um, you know, it's it's long hours, it's hard work, and again, with the lack of female support around, it's kind of you know, I, there's times when you're, you are definitely the only female sitting in the room. Um, so, you know, to get to get these girls out on site is so important and get them the experience that they need. 
do do some women feel like I don't know, it's kind of an, a, a boys, kind of an old boys club thing, or there's not many women involved, so maybe women would not be welcome on a job site. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's got to be intimidating. Um, yeah. I've, I've gotten used to it. Um, you have to be very confident. Like I said, there's a lot of times that I'm sitting in the room, or, you know, I could be in a meeting with about 15 people, and I'm for sure the only woman. So, <laughs> what, what's that like? I mean, do you ever get any kind of. I don't know, stereotype. There are these guys look at you and go, what's what's the woman doing? Uh, for what's sure, that? for sure. But yeah. the thing with that is, though, for like for one person who might be that way, I have five other people sitting around me who are supportive. Yeah. So, so that's that's the most important part. So I, I, I've come across a lot of very kind, supportive people, including the tradesmen who, who uh, you know, take the time to show me what's happening. Right, I'm sure you get a lot of support too, right? I mean, I'm sure, I do. I'm, I'm sure you meet people who are cheering you on and saying, "This is awesome. This is great to see." I do, and that's one of the yeah. reasons why we have the uh, Pink Hard Hat Ladies Facebook page started. Oh, uh, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time to let me uh, talk about that because. Um, Tell me all about it. We we get together every once in a while, and so we started off as maybe a group of you know three or four of us, and over time we grew. And so my friend uh, Alice Florolopoulos started the Facebook page. She's our administrator. There's project coordinators, superintendents. We've got estimators. We've got um, a group of women, and we'll we'll put a post up on Facebook. And wherever we're meeting up, anybody is more than welcome to stop on by and have some dinner and drinks with us. We just get together to job share, um, you know, who's hiring and what's happening yeah. in the scene right now. And, you know, um, companies share information and, you know, just. I think that's great. Are there lots of jobs out there? I mean, we've heard about this sort of downturn in the real estate market here locally. Is that is that kind of depressed the job market a little bit or there's still lots of work no, out there? No, there's lots of work. Yeah, lots of yeah. people are hiring. Lots of people are hiring. Be yeah. confident. And when you go into your job interviews, hold your head up high and be confident. Yeah. How much money can you make in one of these jobs? Um, a standard site administrator anywhere, I suppose. Like, honestly, just starting as an office administrator, yeah. you're probably making like 55000 Okay. Um, project coordinator, sixty five and up, probably to seventy five. Like, those are basic administrative type of positions, but you're making a lot more money when you're working in an industry um, on a construction project. Yeah. How about if you... Uh if you end up with a, a print, your apprenticeships in like uh, you know plumbing, carpentry, that kind of thing, that's good money, right? Oh, you're making good money, and you're yeah. heading towards a wonderful retirement. Yeah. And when you're living in Vancouver, I mean, it's so expensive to get by, and compared to other job industries, the can I mean, your your pay and your benefit scale is is awesome. Would you say that more women should open their minds to this idea? Like maybe for a lot of women might be listening to this, maybe it's never even occurred to them to, to think about a career in trades. No, of course not, because yeah. it didn't occur to me until my early 20s because I had no idea how much I was going to love it until somebody said, hey, you should give this a try. And that's it goes back to what I was saying about taking the shop class. I think if I had taken a shop class in high school, I would have realized how much I loved it then. Okay, Tara, where would where do people find your Facebook uh, group if they want more information? If they want more information, they go to Pink Hard Hat Ladies. Pink Hard Hat Ladies on Facebook. Yes. Okay, Tara, I think you're doing an awesome job here. Thank you very, Thanks very much so for much, coming Mike. in. Thanks so much, Mike. You bet. Tara Brown, Pink Hard Hat Ladies on Facebook. It's a support group for women getting involved in the trade. She's a, pro a project coordinator with Urban One Builders. Appreciate 
her time today. Let's talk about the uptick in youth smoking and vaping rates now. Do we need a tougher crackdown on smoking? How about on college and university campuses, for example? Let's talk about that now with Patricia Woods. She is a PhD candidate in the School of Nursing at the University of Victoria. She wrote a great op-ed on this uh, topic in the Vancouver Sun this week, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Mike. Very happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. I uh, live near a high school near my house, and oftentimes when I'm walking by there, I'm amazed to see how many kids are, some of them are smoking, but a lot of them are vaping. And that's surprising to me. And then you take a look at the statistics, though, and there's an alarming increase in the number of young people who are smoking, and especially vaping, right? It's incredibly alarming. And the recent uh, research out of the University of Waterloo uh, he just really, Dr. David Hammond, really just raised the alarm about it. And he said, we have to do something now. We can't wait a few more years until there's another, you know, batch of reports that this is, it's really scary. It's up, uh, you know, over 80, 80% increase in some, um, in some areas. And of course, the smoking rate is going up as well. We were doing really well with the youth smoking rate, but it's up 3% since 2016. So really very alarming. Yeah, why is that happening? I wonder. Is it like kids are attracted to vaping? Maybe some of the flavors, flavors in the vaping juice. What's causing it? Uh, there's there's a lot of factors involved. Um, one is the vapes um, devices are easily accessible, even though they are not supposed to be bought by anybody over eighteen. They can buy them over the internet really easily by just ticking a little box and saying that they're over eighteen. And they don't believe that it's harmful. They think, oh, I'm not smoking, you know, if I'm just inhaling this vapor that comes in flavors like, you know, mint and bubble gum and, you know, cherry candy, uh, that it's not harmful to them. But what they don't realize is that they're just becoming just as addicted to nicotine as if they were smoking. Right, like some people might say, yeah, because some people might say the vapor is less harmful than smoke, which I guess is a relatively valid argument, but you're still getting, you're still getting addicted to nicotine you're still getting addicted to nicotine. So no, you're not inhaling any tar or some of the chemicals, but it's the lifelong addiction to nicotine that's that starts with vaping. Okay, I agree with you. That's a disturbing trend for sure. So what should we do about it? Let's, how about the smoking ban on university and college campuses that you've written about? Now, there's, there's already a couple of BC campuses that have done this. They've gone 100% smoke-free, right? Yes, well, if you look at, there's a a national status report put out by the um, Canadian Cancer Society, and they've listed all of the universities and colleges across Canada that are 100% smoke-free, which is really great. So we do have five in BC, but um, with the policies, it's really important that they're comprehensive and they are 100% smoke-free. So no designated smoking areas, that they also cover vaping and hookah and and cannabis. And the only two in BC, according to this report, that are entirely comprehensive are Douglas College and Langara College. Right. And I right. was actually part of the of the committee when we um, when we moved forward to a smoke free campus uh, at Langara. And what was amazing to me was we we did it from a very um, uh, sort of um, you know iterative organic process. We involved students. We involved the whole campus community because. It shouldn't really be seen as a as a ban on smoking. It's more like what do we, you know, the whole all everybody in the campus community has a stake in in this issue, and we all need to be involved and involved in the in the solution. So really, just starting the conversation on campuses. It's like what do we, you know, what are we what are we doing with this? What do we believe? I mean, a lot of people really believe that designating smoking areas 
are are effective. And of course, they're not. <laughs> so that's one of the, you know, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions. Um, some of them historic from when we didn't know as much about smoking behavior as we as we do now. Um, and and some of them are still, you know, prevalent today where, oh, it's not all that bad. And we yeah. have to, you know, support people in ways to relieve their stress. Well, we on college campuses, we have a really unique opportunity to help people positively build in, you know, healthy coping strategies um, by not reaching for a cigarette or uh, I'll put donuts in there too. <laughs> Although they haven't killed anybody lately, I don't think. Um, but, you know, we can really, we don't do anybody any favors by by permitting any form of, of smoking or tobacco or cannabis or vaping on, on, on campuses. It's not good for anybody. Are designated smoking areas on a university or college campus, is that potentially a trigger point for someone who's maybe trying to quit? Like, let's say someone has quit smoking or vaping, and then they walk by a smoking area and see a bunch of other kids smoking, and they're like, oh, now I got the, I got the itch again. It's a huge trigger point, and we know that. There's a lot of research to show that the sight of people smoking and the smell of smoking or vaping uh, triggers those very intense cravings. Um, and in order for them, for people not to be exposed to that and not to be exposed to any secondhand smoke, the designated smoking area would have to be so far away from where people were that is basically, you know, not, not used because people are not going to walk a long, long way um, to have a cigarette. Or it would have to be in a hermetically sealed, you know, reverse um, airflow room, which <laughs> would be tremendously expensive. And, and again, we're not, you know, we're not doing anybody any favors by providing a place on campuses for, for people to smoke. We're actually doing them a lot of harm. We're, we're killing them slowly. And no, it won't, you know, it won't kill them today and it won't kill them tomorrow. But for anybody, for all of those young people that are just starting in those smoking habits, if we can provide a, a, a positive, supportive environment on campuses and actually have them perhaps when they leave their post-secondary education as non-smokers, as opposed to, you know, them trying to quit, you know, 35 years later when it's a very well-established addiction and a lot of the harm to the body has already been done. You know, we have an opportunity uh, to, um, to intervene much, much earlier on and to really, and to provide peer support and make people aware that there's nicot- free nicotine replacement therapy. A lot of people don't realize that. Do you think that... Uh there's always the nanny state argument, right? Like this is the heavy hand of the state coming down and telling us what's good for us and what, what's, what's not good for us. And, you know, you mentioned donuts earlier. So I, I thought an, an interesting comment you had in your op-ed in the sun this week was a, a college administrator remarking that, well, what are we going to do? Ban donuts on campus next? I mean, where does it stop? How do you, how do you respond to that? <laughs> well, <laughs> the same way I said, I, what I said to him, I said, well, if, if donuts killed 50% of the people who ate them, then, then yes, we would, we would be wise not to have people consuming donuts on campus. Um, but I think that it's a, it's a holdover from a previous time where we didn't understand as much about smoking and smoking behavior as we do now when it was seen as sort of a lesser evil and it's still, to, to some extent, among uh, people who haven't read a lot of the research, it's considered a lesser evil than, you know, um, drugs or alcohol or, or some of the other things that can negatively impact people's health. But if you look at it in terms of the magnitude of the, of the problem, uh, let alone how much it costs and the harm to the environment, 
uh, you know, it's, it's a lot bigger than a lot of these other problems. So that's sort of, that's the attitude that we need to, that we need to shift. And we just need to, we need to start this conversation and kind of open that, that bin of beliefs um, and shake them out and say, what are, you know, what, what is the purpose of providing smoking areas on campus? You know, because what, what, I think what the administrators perhaps think they're, think they're doing uh, and what's actually happening are, are two different things. I think they're being kind. It's a good debate to have. Patricia, good op-ed in the paper this week. Thanks for coming on today. All right. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Have a wonderful day. All right. That's Patricia Wood. She's a PhD student in the School of Nursing at the University of Victoria. Let's check our hot question of the day on this, which is on the topic she raised in the Vancouver Sun this week. Should there be a ban on smoking on college and university campuses? You make them these campuses go 100% smoke free no designated smoking site on the whole campus imagine if you were a smoker and you're attending college or university and there's nowhere for you to smoke on the whole campus is that a good thing or a bad thing let's check the hot question 79 percent of you today on our hot questions say yes ban smoking on these campuses 100 percent smoke free that's a I don't know, that's a little surprising to me. I thought maybe there'd be a little closer on our poll here today because I know you do. we do hear from the smokers every time we raise this issue and they, they point out that, look, what about us too? This is an addiction. 79% say, yes, let's make uh, college and university campuses 100% smoke-free. Just 21% say, no, that's just way too restrictive. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Let's open the phone lines on it now and phone me and tell me what you think. Should college and university campuses go 100% smoke-free? If you have any thoughts about this uh, sharp increase in smoking and vaping rates among kids, too, I'd love to hear from you. Some of these numbers are are just uh, pretty stunning, really. A 74% increase in vaping by kids aged 16 to 19. Also, an increase in smoking, regular smoking of cigarettes, also up among teenagers. I got two teenage boys going to a high school uh, near my house. I walk by that high school fairly frequently when I'm taking my dog for a walk. And I see kids out there smoking and vaping. Sometimes I see kids I know. I, I see them there, and I think I just think to myself, what are you doing? What are you doing? My God, I got two parents. I lost both of them to smoking. My dad died of lung cancer. My mom died of a brutal stroke. They were both smokers. I have drilled this into my kids. Don't you dare take up smoking. You know, I know some of their friends are vaping. I've told them, don't do that either. And they're not doing it as far as I know, but it's a worry for me as a parent. Lots of seismic activity this week. We had the triple shot of earthquakes off the B.C. coast this morning. That included a 5.6 magnitude tremor off of Haida Gwaii. Experts say those were aftershocks from a 6.2 magnitude offshore earthquake on Wednesday night. Meanwhile, in Southern California, you had that 6.4 quake on Thursday. You heard our expert on earlier on the show saying these quakes are not connected. There's a long distance apart between California and Haida Gwaii. So this is not, 
kind of uh, this is kind of um uh, just a coincidence that you got quakes happening off the BC coast and California at the same time. But still, I think it's a wake up call, a warning sign that you should be ready. Everybody knows this, right? Everyone should have a plan. Everyone should have an earthquake kit in your home. Let's talk about that now, about what you need to have in your earthquake kit. My guest is Carly Benson, Manager of Community Resilience in the Office of Emergency Management for the City of Vancouver. Carly, thanks a lot for coming on. It's my pleasure. How many people got an earthquake kit? Do we know? Is there any stats on how many people actually got a kit? So both Statistics Canada and Emergency Management BC have conducted studies over the over the past couple of years. And in average around Vancouver, we're looking at just over 50% of people say that they have a, a kit at home. Okay, what do you think of that number? I mean, obviously you want it to be higher than that, but 50%, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. If I was going to guess, I'd maybe guess around that number maybe. Yeah, so obviously we would love everyone to have an emergency kit at home and yeah. um, especially just some of the most basic items, things that people should be able to put aside um, would be really important first steps. I know having a kit can sometimes seem like a daunting task. There's uh, a lot that can go in there, but really at, at the most basic, having water for the people in your home, including your pets, yes. having some canned food, your medications, um, those are the most essential items to, to keep in a kit. Okay, let's talk about some of those items, Carly. What should be in there? Let's start with water, right? Crucial. How much water should you have in there? So ideally, we have four liters per person per day um, and also enough enough water for your pets. But keeping in mind that we need to make sure that that water stays, um, that water can, bottled water can expire. So also making sure when you're putting your kit aside that you're, you are checking the expiry date at least once a year. So maybe once a year, like what is the expiration or the shelf life of bottled water typically? Yeah, once a year is, is pretty typical. It does vary okay. by, by water, um, the different types of water you have. Okay, I'm, um, I'm way overdue to upgrade this. I mean, I got a big, one of those big plastic totes in my yard. It's got bottled water in there, but man, I haven't done a check on that in a while. I mean, a lot of people might think they're ready. They got a kit, but you got you to gotta upgrade that kit and keep on top of it, right? Yeah, so one of the yeah. easy ways to remember is when we change our clocks back and forth is to use that as a good time to, to check your kit and just make sure none of your food or medications or your water has passed its expiry date. Okay, so for food, what do you recommend put in there? Canned food? Definitely canned food or yeah. non-perishable food. Um, making sure if you have canned food, you also include a can opener. Um, but we <laughs> yeah. also recommend that people put a couple of their favorite treats, like a chocolate bar or something, just as if you do have to dig into that food, knowing that you're going to get a chocolate bar is, is certainly a way to make it seem a little less stressful. All right. Well, what, what else would be near the top of your list that should be in there? Uh so having medications is a pretty important one, um, just because if we had a major earthquake, the likelihood that your local pharmacy is closed or you may not be able to get to it. So knowing that you can be um, self-sufficient with the medications that you require is pretty critical, as well as having your important documents. A lot of us have uh, some of our important documents saved online, but depending on whether there's disruption to internet or phone service, you want to make sure you have copies of your insurance, your driver's license, your birth certificate, those essential essential items. How about a radio? 
definitely a radio. So yeah. the next thing would be um, making sure that you can get communication updates. So having uh, a handheld crank radio is great because you don't have to worry about the batteries dying, but also a battery-powered radio um, that would be another thing that you would look at replacing the batteries every two years when you're check or every, sorry twice a year when you're checking your kit. Um, also, having something for light, like a flashlight for warmth, um, and having a, a basic first aid kit just to make sure you can look after your your family. What about something like for cooking food? I mean, a lot of people might have like a a propane barbecue or something around their home, and maybe they might think, well, that would that would come in handy if there's no power. Yeah, so uh, a propane barbecue would be would be good as long as it's outside the home. That's a pretty dangerous item to bring inside. Right. And in Vancouver, a lot of people have camping supplies, so they might be more self-sufficient than they think because they've got their little cooking stoves um, that they may take into the backcountry. So those are all things to think about when you're putting aside the food for your kit is how are you going to heat it, warm it up, prepare it. Okay, how about... Um a cell phone. I mean, typically, if there's a major quake, would would that would that pot- uh, potentially knock out cell phone service? Uh, it's it's possible, or we could just see a disruption to cell phone service because so many people would be trying to connect to to family and friends. So we do recommend having like a spare battery pack so you can charge your phone because that's likely one of the first items you that's going to die on you is your cell phone. Um, but yeah. also just trying to use um, text messaging or um, text services like checking in on Facebook so you can communicate with large numbers of people rather than a a phone call to each of your family members. It actually is also why we encourage people to have in their emergency plan why they should have an out-of-town contact. So if you're going to have trouble getting through on the phone, having somebody located outside of um, Vancouver or outside of BC that everyone is responsible for checking in with can be a really good way to to mitigate the fact that you may not be able to make every single phone call you want to. Right. Speaking to Car- uh, Carly Benson from the Emergency Management Office at the City of Vancouver about your earthquake kit, where should you keep the keep the kit? Should you keep it in your home or should you keep it in if if if, if you're living if you have a backyard, should you keep it in the yard? So certainly you should have a kit at home. Um, my emergency kit is in my bedroom just because I spend a lot of time sleeping. Um, so that's a place in my home that I am a lo- in a lot and have what, want to have it, access to it there. Yeah. Um, some of the supplies certainly you could keep in your backyard, but having making sure that you have access to some of the most urgent things in your home. If you're putting together a go kit for if you need to leave your home very quickly, having that somewhere close to the door like a, a closet is probably a good idea. Okay, what should be in your go kit? So your go kit is just a smaller version of, of the kit you would have at home. You do want water and food in there. Having those important documents is, is and medication is particularly critical in your go kit because you may not know when you're going to be able to get back home. So you want to make sure you're taking everything that you could need um, before you head out that door. All right. What about a, a plan? Like uh, if you got your go kit, I, that's probably a good idea. But I but maybe you should have a plan on where you're going to go. Like, should people have? Should families have a plan on what to do if if a quake hits? Yes, absolutely. So, <clears throat> one of the first things we tell people if you're going to start to get prepared is to start with an emergency plan, which is how are you going to find your family? So your kids might be at daycare or at school, your partner, or your roommates, or or 
spouse may be at work, someone may be out at the gym. So there's no guarantee that everybody is going to be all together. And there's nothing more stressful in an emergency than not knowing where your family is or that they're okay. safe. So having having a plan, making sure you, you all know how to connect with one another if they're the cell phones or, or phone services disrupted, having a meeting place where everybody knows to go to that meeting place. And as I mentioned before, having that out-of-town contact so everyone is responsible for checking in with someone who lives outside of the, the earthquake zone um, to, to share right. the information that people are safe and where they are. Very important information, Carly. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Appreciate it. Carly Benson from the Office of Emergency Management at the City of Vancouver. I've been absolutely fascinated by the case in Washington State, the murder trial of William Earl Talbot II. This is the Washington State truck driver who was arrested in 2018 after investigators used genetic genealogy to link him to an absolutely brutal double murder that occurred in 1987. 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg, her 20-year-old boyfriend, Jay Cook, from suburban Victoria. They disappeared after leaving their home to do a road trip to Seattle on November 18th, 1987. They were later found dead this crime is absolutely brutal. Van Kylenburg was found naked from the waist down. She had been shot in the back of the head. Her boyfriend's body was found two days later. He had been beaten with rocks and strangled. Absolutely terrible crime. It had gone unsolved for all these years. But then investigators were able to use DNA to connect the crime to William Earl Talbot. He was convicted by a jury in Washington State. Have a listen to this. You're going to hear here the, the guilty verdict being read out in court last week. We, the jury, find the defendant, William Earl Talbot II, guilty of the crime of first degree murder as charged in Talbot. Okay, you can actually hear him say at the end of that clip there, whispering, I didn't do it. He collapsed back in his chair. They had to wheel him out of the courtroom. The jury disagreed. They felt that he did do it. And I'll tell you, for the families of this of these two victoria young people this was a, a great relief to them let's check in now with cc morse she's the chief genetic genealogist at parabon she's been involved in this case i'm very pleased she could come on the show hi cc hi thanks for having me on thank you so much for coming on this has been a, an absolutely fascinating case and, and a real test case and an, an historic case i think for the use of this type of of dna evidence i know you've been involved in this case and you've done you've done incredible work in this uh this new technology tell me how the uh, the authorities here in this case were able to crack this case and and, and convict this guy Sure. This was actually the first law enforcement case that I used my genetic genealogy methodology on. And I was able to identify William O. Talbot II as the potential contributor of that crime scene DNA in only about two hours. And I spent uh, the rest of the weekend trying to make sure my theory was solid. But it was a really straightforward case because we took the crime scene DNA file and uploaded it to a public website called GEDmatch that genealogists use for their own research and compared it to about a million people who were participating there. And right at the top of our match list, we had two people who shared enough DNA to be second cousins 
with Mr. Talbot. And one was on his mom's side and one was on his dad's side. So once I was able to find that marriage, it joined those two family trees together. And his parents had three daughters and one son. So he was the only male that would have that correct mix of ancestral DNA to be the person who left their DNA behind at the crime scene. Okay, this is, this is incredible. I congratulate you on this amazing work that you've done here. Um, I guess a, a crucial element to this is that the authorities have got to make sure they have that preserved DNA, right? In this case, you had that DNA has been right. preserved for decades, and they were able to, to use it once the kind of the science caught up. Correct, and we've been getting a lot of accolades for our work, but we would never be able to do our work if the investigators hadn't collected and stored that DNA evidence for all these decades and kept it viable for us to use when this newest technology came out. The difference is we're looking at hundreds of thousands of genetic markers across the chromosome, and traditionally in forensics, they've only been looking at a handful, uh, usually 20 genetic markers. And that's why what we're doing is so much more powerful for for human identification than has ever been possible, really, in the history of crime solving. Yeah, it really is something. And after you were able to use that preserved DNA to identify some relatives of William Earl Talbot, the investigators there in Washington State were able to get uh, a direct uh, DNA sample from him, right? How did they do that? Yeah, so what I'm doing is really just a tip. It's a highly scientific tip, but it's nothing they would arrest on. So they have to go out and do their traditional police work. And in this case, that involved, of course, researching his background and then following him to see if he would drop anything that they could take and test for DNA. They have to get that exact match to their forensic DNA profile that they've had for all these years. That's what's court admissible, and that's what allows them to make an arrest. So he, they followed him quite a while before he finally dropped a cup out of his truck. And that's fair game. In the United States, if you leave your DNA behind somewhere and you know, trash, a water bottle, McDonald's, anything like that, law enforcement is allowed to pick that up and test it. And when they did, they got that exact match that they'd been looking for for decades. This is incredible that they were able to solve this crime so, so many years later, so many decades later. And I know for the, the families uh, in Victoria here, Cece, I mean, this, is, this was just a, a great relief for them uh, to have this justice. I know how grateful they are to you. But, man, this opens up so many other possibilities on so many other cold cases in the United States, doesn't it? It sure does. I do yeah. want to say the Cook and Van Kylenberg families are just amazing. And I'm yeah. so happy we were finally able to bring them some answers and some justice. Yeah. They have waited a long time. Everyone is deserving and worthy, but those are just wonderful families, and what they've been through is horrible. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't um, obviously as, doesn't bring back their loved ones, but it does give right. them that sense of closure and justice, and they're able to move on with their lives in some ways, I think. I think it lifts a big burden, finally. Yeah. I know that Kenya's brother really carried a heavy burden on his shoulders, you know, all these years, and he seems a bit lighter, and, you know, he can put this behind him a little bit more. You never get closure, I don't think, but at least he knows justice is served for his sister and for Jay. Um, As far as other families, yeah, there are hundreds of families, maybe thousands of families waiting on cold cases, waiting for answers for their own loved ones. We have uh, 59 successful identifications, 58 since Mr. Talbot. Um, So we've had lots and lots of arrests, dozens of them in the United States. 
uh, going all the way back to a 1967 crime in Seattle, Washington. That's our oldest cold case thus far where we were able to identify the perpetrator. In that case, he was deceased, though, so no arrest. We see that, of course, in some of these older cases. But um, there's certainly no reason we can't do this for any cold case where there's viable DNA remaining. So that, you know, does offer a lot of hope to people who've been waiting for decades. Tell me a little bit about the the Golden State Killer case that people might be familiar with. Yeah, that is what finally got us into doing law enforcement. I had been asked dozens of times by law enforcement if I could use these techniques that I developed for adoption to help them in law enforcement cases. But I had hesitated to do that uh, until after the Golden State Killer suspect arrest. And one of my colleagues used these techniques to identify uh, D'Angelo Mr. D'Angelo is the potential suspect in that case, but it wasn't the first one to go to trial because it's so complex. It's multi-jurisdictional. It's going to take a while to get in front of the courts. So that meant that the second case where genetic genealogy was used to identify the potential suspect went first, and that was Mr. Talbot's. So right after the Golden State Killer suspect arrest is when I made the decision to jump in and start helping law enforcement. That case was worked by Barbara Ray Venter, uh, she's a genetic genealogist like me in California, and she's continuing to work with the FBI on other cases as well. So, you know, between us and a couple other people, I think we're closing in on about 100 cases very wow. soon where we'll get answers for, for these families and victims. That's really incredible. And the Talbot case uh, here in Washington State, was, a, it was would you consider that to be a real test case? I mean, this is, the, is this the first, the first yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah, it really was very important to law enforcement and genetic genealogy and what we're now calling investigative genetic genealogy, which is specifically what we're doing here. Um, because genetic genealogy ended up not really being on trial and the defense and prosecution just stipulated that it was used as a tip, it really reinforces what we've been claiming all along, that you know this isn't what should be focused on in trial because this is not... Uh, the type of things that would be entered as evidence. It really is a tip. It's a lead generator. So we were really happy to see it treated that way. Although I would have loved to go up there and testify like I was scheduled to, to see the families and the wonderful Detective Scharf. Um, this was definitely the best outcome that it was treated this way. And then to get this guilty verdict is huge for us. And it means that many of the departments that were on the sidelines waiting to see how this would be handled in court We'll probably jump in now and start coming forward with their cold cases as well to be worked with genetic genealogy. I'll be speaking to Detective James Scharf uh, coming up here after I finish speaking with you, CC. He is the uh, oh, the, hom- the best. Yeah, homicide he's detective really there. Thinking, you know, embraces the newest technology all the time. I was happy to hear he was going to be explaining and in, in the trial the work I did because there's nobody better to shepherd this through the first trial than Detective Scharf. I'll be speaking to him in just a few moments. He's a hero to these families now. I can tell. I can tell you that. Just yes. lastly, what about the? Are there, is there controversy around this evidence? Right. I mean, is there any kind of arguments against uh, public defenders or anyone civil rights activists who think that this evidence maybe should not be admissible in court? Oh, sure. There's always going to be objections and challenges when you start using a new technology or a new technique. Um, but so far we've had a number of convictions through guilty pleas here in the United States. So this was our first conviction through a jury trial. 
But there's been a handful of others who were identified through genetic genealogy that felt there was really no way they could fight this. At least that must be what their attorneys recommended to them, and they went ahead and pled guilty. So we're not so far seeing challenges to it or objections, but I'm sure there will be a defense attorney in the coming year or two that will certainly try to do so. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to be arguing. I think that's why we didn't see it in the Talbot case. It's a difficult yeah. thing to challenge, um, but I'm sure some will try. CC, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Have a great rest of the week weekend. Thank you. Same to you. That's CC Moore. She is a genetic genealogist. She was involved in the case of James Earl, well, William Earl Talbot II, uh, the Washington State truck driver who was uh, convicted in that historic double murder there of those two young people from suburban uh, Victoria. Let me introduce you now to the homicide detective on the case, Jim Scharf from the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office. Jim, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike, for having me. Appreciate it. When did you get involved in this case? I got involved in January of 2005 when... We received a tip from someone that thought she might have a lead on who a suspect could be, but that petered out on us. What's it, what's it like to work on a cold case like that? That's got to be frustrating for, uh, for a homicide cop. Well, I, I've been working cold homicide cases since February of 2005 when we formed our cold case team. And right now we've got it like 101 cold cases dating back to 1956 here in Snohomish County. What you got to do is just go to work every day and hope that that one lead comes through that's going to make a break in the case. I mean, there's lots and lots of dead ends that you hit all the time, but I got a lot of hope in this case uh, back in 2010 when we got a tip that led us to the identification of the man who was the letter writer that was taunting the family and claiming responsibility. And we were able to find him and ruled him out. That gave me hope that someday we're going to be able to get the tip that's going to solve this case. Okay, of course, the big breakthrough came with the, with the DNA evidence. And I just spoke earlier on the show, Jim, to C.C. Moore, who was so uh, crucial in, in solving this case with historic DNA evidence. And we heard the story about how your your uh, investigations investigators were able to get a DNA match uh, with uh, William Earl Talbot. Can you tell me how you did that? How were you able to obtain his DNA? Well, uh, w- first it took the tip from Carabon and C.C. Moore doing the genetic genealogy work with the suspect DNA that they uploaded to GEDmatch for us. And once we got that tip, we had a team of detectives that followed him around. He was a truck driver driving a semi-truck, and luckily for us, he pulled up to a stoplight and opened his door to check something behind the cab, and uh, his coffee cup fell out. We were able to recover that, take it to the crime lab, and by the next day, we had a match and knew that uh, we finally had solved this case. Jim, we just got sadly, we just got a one minute left here. What was, what is, what's it like for you personally to work on this case for so long and, and to see a conviction in this case? Well, it's very gratifying, and you know, this was all about 
finding who killed Tanya and Jay, and that was our whole focus. Uh, we're just so happy to hear the immense outpouring of gratitude from everyone on both sides of the border for all of us that had worked so hard on this case over the past 31-plus years to get it solved and adjudicated like this. Yeah, I, I can. I know for sure. I know the uh, the brother of Tanya's brother, and that whole family, both families. Uh, this brought them great comfort and relief. And uh, I, I just, you know, I think for everyone on this side of the border, I just want to say thanks to you for the great work that you and your team did on this case. And appreciate. We're well. You're very welcome, and we're just so happy for all of you. It's just been wonderful that we're able to use genetic genealogy to solve cases like this now. Jim, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank okay. you. Appreciate it. Jim Scharf, he's the homicide detective there in the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office who worked on those historic murders of those two young people from Victoria, Tanya Van Kylenborger, boyfriend Jay Cook, and the dramatic conviction last week. We yeah, the whole country was in the grips of Raptors mania there as the Toronto Raptors went all the way to the NBA championship. Getting a little a taste of our own Raptors mania in town here today. We got a Toronto Raptor in Vancouver today. No, not Kawhi Leonard. Uh, he's somewhere making a big decision. Maybe that big decision is going to come today, some people think, or if he's going to stay with the Raptors or not. No, I'm talking about Danny Green for the Raptors. He's in Vancouver today for the grand opening of London Drugs in Dunbar. And I know fans have been lining up there to meet him and congratulate him. Our own CKNW producer, Chris Brentlinger. Grant is down there, too. He's a big basketball fan. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. What's the mood like down there? Oh, there's probably about 250 people lined up outside this London Drugs, uh, 4588 Dunbar Street. The bad news is that they only gave out 100 wristbands to meet oh, Danny Green. So oh, he's no. going to be here for one hour. And my understanding, there was about five and a half blocks worth of people lined up here in Dunbar to meet Danny Green. A lot of those people just decided to give up and go home. Uh, but people oh. are excited. We've got a lot of retro Raptors jerseys, surprisingly a couple of Lakers jerseys. I don't know if oh. we're going to get those signed. But a lot of people <laughs> here uh, excited. Uh, still some of the hangover here from Raptors mania. Okay, for sure. And I know you spoke to a bunch of people down there, Chris. Let's have a listen here to Ferdinand. This is the person who was first in line to meet Toronto Raptors star Danny Green. What time did you get here this morning? Uh, well, I got here before 3.30. Nobody was here, so, you know, it felt great. Like, you know, I was just, it, you know, yeah, it was great. You live in Vancouver here. How, I live in Coquitlam, actually, yeah. How yeah. exciting is it? I see you have your Raptors everything on the champion's hat. How exciting is it for you to be able to meet a member of the Toronto Raptors in your city? Oh, for me, it's an it's an amazing feeling, you know, to 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 be around a true champion, you know, you know, appreciate this, you know, Danny Green coming over here, and you know, we're just here to sh support, show him how much we love him, and you know, like how much we love Toronto, how much we love basketball in the west side of Canada, right? So, so what do you have for him to sign? What do you bring? I got his shoes, you know, maybe he can sign my my start of my jersey and maybe my championship hat, you know, whatever, anything. But like, I'm here to see him. It's good enough if I see him, you know. Okay, he was taking no chances, Chris, getting there that early. Wow. No, he, he got here about three full hours before anybody else. He said that wow. he came by last night at about 10, and the employees told him basically, like, there's going to be 100 wristbands we give away. There's no point. Um, so he came back. He drove. Fortunately, he didn't have to take transit. 
Um, but he is committed and he's super happy. Like everybody's been talking to him. People who don't have wristbands have sort of gone up, congratulated him, given him a high five. So congratulations to Ferdinand. I mean, that is dedication. Yeah, cool. I mean, imagine if it had been Kawhi Leonard or uh, Kyle Lowry or something. He would have got there two days before or something. Yeah, the timing is suspicious here with Kawhi Leonard and also Danny Green's a free agent. I know that this is probably not the most opportune timing for him, especially like these things are booked months and weeks in advance. Um, So a lot of questions around Kawhi Leonard's future as well as Danny Green's. Um, But 100 people are going to be fortunate enough to meet him, the two-time NBA champion. Okay, now yet Ferdinand was the first in line. You also spoke to the people who were right behind him, second in line there, Melissa and Lynn. Here they are. It's exciting. Uh, we wanted to give our congratulations to the champion and let him know that uh, we hope he stays in Toronto. What do you think about Kawhi Watch? Has that gone a bit over the top here, or you think him and Danny Green are a package deal? Well, you know, I, I can see why people are really excited. Hopefully we're not scaring him off, but... Um, you know, hopefully he, he sees it and they both see it as fans being passionate and wanting them to come back. Um, and we'll see. We'll hope for the best. So you guys at the very front of the line, what time did you show up this morning? Uh, I showed up at 5 this morning. 5 a.m. Um, the first gentleman in line, uh, he showed up at 3.30. So he was uh, more hardcore than I was. <laughs> okay. Uh, when do they get to meet uh, Danny Green? It's just gotten underway. So from 1 to 2, Danny is going to be in the main foyer of London Drugs. They're going to let people in 10 by 10 if you have one of those purple wristbands that has black stars on it. I'm sure they wanted to come up with something that wasn't easily replicatable. Um, So you come in here, the uh, the Dunbar London Drugs, 4588 Dunbar Street. There are people lined up behind the barrier of the first 100 people. Uh, One of our colleagues at Rock 101 is actually here behind the barrier, and I spoke with him a couple minutes ago, hoping that uh, Danny Green gets through those 100 people in 60 minutes. Um, A lot of them are feeling positive that he might stick around a little bit later in the day as well because they've been here for hours and hours, but uh, I'm not holding my breath about that. But probably about 200 people here right now, yeah. Okay, so you spoke to the people at the front of the line, Chris, and uh, you're also, I think this is smart, go to the back of the line too, and that's where Chris found Izzy. How long have you been here for? When did you get here this morning? Uh, I've been here for about 45 minutes. I got here um, at around 10.45. So Where did you come in from? Uh, all the way from Port Coquitlam. So it was about like an hour drive. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited. I really want to... I want him to stay. I don't know. We'll see. What would, it mean, what would it mean to you to be one of the people who gets to actually meet Danny Green here today at Dunbar? Oh my, it means so much more than I can just put in words. He's a two-time champion. Um, he's a three-point champion. He's uh, he's played on the Spurs. He's he's been in the league for a long time. He also has a cousin, Gerald Green, who I think he's better. But uh, that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> but yeah, it's gonna mean a lot. Hopefully, I get to meet him. Okay, did he get a wristband, Chris? No, he's about oh. 250 people back. So poor Izzy. Oh, uh, but he is very knowledgeable. He knows yeah. about the North Carolina history. He knows about uh, Danny Green being better than Michael Jordan, actually, in university at the University of North Carolina. So I wish I could have brought Izzy to the front. But unfortunately, (laughs) even if you get here at 10.30 this morning, there's not much hope for you. Wow, man, these are super fans. That just shows you how popular this team is. This is Canada's team here. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking a couple weeks back, Mike. Like, Raptors fever just 
swept the entire country and people yeah. are lining up here. Like even as I'm looking down the road here, we've got probably 475 people here now just hoping to get wow. a chance to meet this guy, whether Danny Green stays or goes. I mean, Toronto has a title now and these people are in love. Okay. Okay. So Danny Green is one thing, but what about Kawhi? Now I know you're a big hoops fan, Chris. So let me get yeah. your take on, on Kawhi watch. There's so much buzz out there. Is this guy going to stay or go? Is he going to go to the Lakers, the Clippers, stay with the Raptors? What's your take on it? I think he's staying with the Raptors, but with every day that passes, I think that becomes less likely. I mean, I thought this when we had the helicopters following his SUV around in Toronto. Why would he fly to Toronto to tell them that he's not signing? Like, in this day and age, you can send an email, you can send a fax or text. Um, The romanticism that wears off with the championship, I think, diminishes. If he was going to do, like, a knee-jerk signing, I think that would have happened right away with how awesome it felt in Toronto. He's from Southern California. He went to San Diego State University. So I think the Lakers have a real chance. But more than any professional athlete, like nobody knows who Kawhi Leonard is and what makes him tick. So I think it's pretty even money that he goes to the Lakers and Raptors. I wouldn't say the Clippers have much of a chance right now, but I hope the Raptors, and that's where I think he'll ultimately sign. Yeah, no, I think... um... I, I thought for sure he wanted to go home to L.A., and maybe he still will, because that's where he's from. But the whole concept of him remaining with Toronto seems to have risen up the sort of chart of, of, of possibilities in the last couple of days. Because you'd think, like, you know what I was thinking is if he goes to the Lakers, they've already got their superstars, right? I mean, they got LeBron yeah. James, and they got this other guy, Anthony Davis, who's another big superstar. So he would be like kind of like the number three guy here. You know, I don't, I'm not sure he wants to be the number three guy. What do you think? Yeah, Kawhi's always been his own player. He's always been his own yeah. person. Even in San Antonio when he was 22 years old, he dominated the Miami Heat in the finals, and he was the youngest in, in a finals MVP in history. So I don't know if he wants to sign up with LeBron and Anthony Davis. That's, an int- yeah. that's a, a weird thing to say. I mean, 98% of all NBA players, I'm sure they'd say, sign me up. You can give me the max contract. I'll do it. I'm, I'm here for four championships in six years sort of thing. Um, it's really hard to turn down. A lot of teams this past offseason have come out and said that they decided not to trade for Kawhi Leonard because they knew that he was going to sign somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah. So whether or not things have changed in the past year, I mean, this past season went as well as it could have possibly gone for the Raptors, so that's one thing. Maybe Kawhi fell in love with Canada, but I think he's drawing this out uh, longer than anybody thought, and in the process, he's holding these three organizations hostage, right? There's hardly anybody else out there to sign anymore once Kawhi's off the market. Right. I think the guy wants to win. You know, he seems to be addicted to winning. And maybe yeah. he's decided that maybe the staying with the Raptors might be his best bet to win again. Yeah. And a little inside baseball here with the basketball coverage. I mean, the Eastern Conference has gotten weaker. Yeah. And the Toronto Raptors, if they keep Kawhi Leonard, are certainly poised to do a lot of damage in the East. Like, there is no big, bad Miami Heat anymore. It's not a foregone collusion that conclusion that the Warriors are going to come out of the West. So I think that wherever Kawhi goes becomes the favorite to represent their conference next year. Philadelphia is great. Um, Kawhi has won two titles on two teams, but San Antonio and Toronto don't really get the needle moving. It's not like you're playing in New York City or Los Angeles. So whatever matters most to him, like he has an endorsement deal with New Balance. So he has all the money and he has presumably what makes him happy. 
it just comes down to like where he wants to play and whether or not playing with Anthony Davis and LeBron actually makes sense to him or if he wants the entire country to still be in love with him. Okay, Chris, I know uh, I'll let you get back to work down there, down at London Drugs there. Like, if people are thinking if they go down there now, obviously it's too late to get in and, and meet this Danny Green, but is there any chance maybe he comes outside and waves to the crowd or something? Uh, maybe. He's going to be doing basketball camps. That's why he's here at London Drugs. London Drugs is supporting the basketball camps that he's putting on in Vancouver and Richmond. Okay. So he's, he's actually going to be at Metrotown later today at oh. 5 p.m. If you buy a pair of his, his uh, Puma shoes, you get to meet him at Foot Locker later. He's doing sort of the media tour on his one day off from his basketball camp. Ah. So I'd recommend that. There's uh, there's just more people here, Mike, even in the time that we've been on the air. I really, I really wouldn't make the trip down here, especially all okay. the way out to Dunbar. But good luck to you if you want to go to Metrotown later. Okay, Chris, thanks for coming on. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. All right, Chris Brentlinger-Grant, CKNW producer, uh, producer checking in on all the uh, Raptors mania down there at London Drugs.